It is good to be with you this morning. You might not know this, but Constantinburg normally runs about a week behind you guys here in South Penn. So every now and then we get to swap and Luke gets to go to Seaburg and he does the message there that you guys would have done last week. And the message I'm giving you today, I'll do to Seaburg next week. But it really works out well for us just to, to connect and to cross over. And uh, I really enjoy being here. I mean, I really feel connected and part of this, uh, the story of you guys uh, in such big ways. And I know Seaburg absolutely loves having Luke there. So thank you so much. Um, you probably don't know this, but I got to spend some time with your staff this week. We had a kind of a media staff get together on Wednesday morning. It was good fun. Uh, you, your staff team are just a fantastic group of people. Really, really great people. I mean, we gra- grabbed a coffee. What's it? Blue Door Cafe, right? Is that the right thing? And then we went to play cave golf. Sorry? Oh, yeah, no, I did win, Mike. Thanks for asking. <laughs> I didn't. It doesn't matter, but I mean, I did. Yeah, 37, four hole-in-ones, but you know. Um, so, you know, your staff team, their strength isn't putt-butt. But what I can tell you is that they love this church, and they love God. And a lot of them are involved in Next Gen, and they love your kids. And it was just so awesome and inspiring to connect with these guys. Well, we've got a... Yeah, Luke, Luke was not as good as I anticipated, huh? but he's got other strengths, like pork belly and cooking and lots of things. Well, we've got a cracker text to get into today, so I want to get straight into it. We're in the final week. It's week six of the second sub-series in the James series that's called Real Faith Leads to Godly Action. For the last six weeks, we've been looking at real faith leads to godly action, and we've seen that real faith transforms our words transforms our deeds, produces true worship, that that real faith doesn't discriminate, that real faith loves others in light of God's mercy. And then today we're going to see that real faith is alive in godly action. Big idea for today is this. True faith is shown to be genuine and alive through acts of faith. What we're going to do this morning, this is a roadmap. I'm going to read our text, uh, James 2, 14 to 26. Then we're going to look at two examples of faith that you'll see mentioned in the text. We're going to explore the relationship between faith and works. What's the deal between faith and works? And then we want to look at two ingredients of a genuine and living faith that we see uh, in these verses. So here we go. I'm going to read from James 2. The Bible I'm holding in my hand is a slightly, it's a slightly different version. It's a 2011 version, but uh, you can follow on the screen. It's very similar. So what good is it? This is verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister without clothes and daily food, uh, without clothes and daily food, if one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he uh, 
offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his action were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Well, this is God's word. Can may he bless us and speak to us through it today. So picture Abraham hiking up Mount Moriah. After three days, they've left behind the servants, they've left behind the crowds, and they're trudging up the mountain, and it's just Abraham and his only son, Isaac. Isaac is breathing a little heavier than Abraham as they walk up, because he's carrying with him the wood for the burnt sacrifice they're going to make on top of Mount Moriah. Abraham, he's a lot older. Remember, uh, Isaac was born to them almost miraculously in their old age. And so he's much older. And as they're trudging up, he's carrying the fire and the knife for the sacrifice. Don't know how he carried the fire. I'm, I'm guessing they didn't have matches back then, but maybe it was a little torch of some kind. So they're walking up the mountain. They're exhausted. Isaac, maybe with a little concern in his voice, says, hey, dad, you know, who packed for this trip? I can see we got the word. We've got the fire, we've got the knife, but I'm not seeing any lamb here for the burnt sacrifice. God will provide, says Abraham. See, but what Isaac doesn't know is that days before God had encountered Abraham and told him to take his son up the mountain and to sacrifice him there to God as a burnt offering. Remarkably, Abraham is following through and obeying what God told him to do. There's this, there's this confidence that Abraham has that somehow God's going to intervene, that somehow something's going to happen, but he doesn't know what. He's acting in faith. He's saying yes to what God spoke to him about. Hebrews 11 tells us that, that Abraham was even thinking at some time that even if it happened that he, he had to sacrifice Isaac there, that God would raise him up from the dead and restore him to Abraham. So there's this incredible faith at work in Abraham in such a high stake. So they get to the spot, the top of the mountain, looks good. They, un- they take everything off their shoulders. They build this altar. I wonder if Isaac's starting to feel a bit nervy. His dad's been looking at him a bit strangely. Seriousness in his eyes. You know, Isaac's been looking around thinking someone's going to come running up saying, hey, you forgot the lamb. I'm here. But suddenly Abraham grabs Isaac binds him up, places him on the altar, raises the knife, is about to plunge it down. Abraham, Abraham, came the voice of the angel of the Lord. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Just then a ram caught in a thicket. And uh, a ram caught in a thicket. (laughs) Abraham spotted the ram caught in a thicket, substituted it out for Isaac and offered it to the Lord as the burnt offering. Let's read from Genesis 22, what happens next. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time. And he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. 
and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Wow. We're a part of that blessing. James, and right after he speaks about the faith of, of Abraham, he speaks about the faith of Rahab. So he moves from this patriarch of our faith to this prostitute in a pagan nation. So there's a little video. We can watch the story of Rahab. It's just over three minutes. So let's play that. The Faithful Hall of Fame, Rahab. This is Rahab. Rahab lived in the town of Jericho in the Promised Land. Rahab was not an Israelite, and she made bad choices. But God had a plan for Rahab, even though she was a sinner. Now God told his people, the Israelites, to go into the Promised Land. So Joshua sent two spies to search the land around the city of Jericho. The two spies came to Rahab's house to stay the night. of Jericho heard that there were spies in his city, so he sent orders for Rahab to bring them out. But Rahab hid the spies and told the king's men that it was true that the men were at her house, but she did not know where they were now. She told the king's men to go quickly to find the spies, because they could not have gone far. Go now! Oh, right. So the king's men rushed out to the city in pursuit of the Israelite spies. All the while, the Israelites hid on Rahab's roof. So Rahab went to them and said, I know the Lord has given you this land. We have heard of the great acts that God has done for you. Your God is the God of all the heavens and the earth. So please swear to me that you will be kind to my family. The spies agreed to this, and Rahab helped them escape from the city. Before they left, they told Rahab to tie a scarlet rope to the window. Yeah! Whoa! Oops! Uh-huh. This rope would serve as a mark for Rahab's house and would remind the Israelites of their promise to her. Thank you! Oh, thank you! And so the spies were on their way. For three days, they hid from the king's men who were looking for them. Finally, they returned to Joshua and told them all they had seen. Rahab was remembered for her faithfulness, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies and put her trust in the one true God. wondering if it was beards, but it was masks. Eh? Maybe they know something we didn't. 
But what an incredible story of faith. Actually, the more you think about it, the more remarkable is the faith of this woman, Rahab, a prostitute in a pagan city of a pagan nation, trusting in the God of Israel. She's heard stories here and there, probably from all the men that passed through her house, about this nation of Israel and their God who is doing great things and is giving them the land in which she lives. So she hides the spies, sends the soldiers on a wild goose chase at the risk of her own life and the life of her family. Remarkable. She doesn't know much about God at all, but the little that she does know, she acts on. You know, according to James, when he thinks about what real and living faith is, he thinks about these two stories. He thinks about Abraham. And he thinks about Rahab. You know, Abraham and Rahab, they trusted God in spite of the prospect of real loss. They were facing real loss, yet they trusted. They took great risks for God. Their confidence and trust in God exceeded the imminent implications of their decisions to say yes to what God was urging them to do. The big question is, why these examples of faith? Why is James telling the Christ followers in his day about these true stories? Well, James is looking around in his day, and he's looking at the Christ followers and some of the believers in the church that's been scattered, and he's seeing a very different picture than he sees in Abraham and Rahab. And so he makes this deeply challenging observation in verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. What's happening is James is seeing a significant gap between what some believers proclaim to be true and how they're actually living out their life. There's a significant gap between, between what people proclaim and how they live. I mean, that's actually what we've been doing over the last five weeks. We've been looking at exactly that. And I don't think this is a random example. I mean, we know James has been writing about the relationship between the rich and the poor in the local church. And and it's an example that we can identify with. The, The point hits us quite hard. The difference between what we say and actually what we do is we think about this person in great need. Now, if you think about this This example of someone who's hungry and, you know, without clothes, it's a fairly innocuous example compared to the stories of Abraham and Rahab. I mean, the cost is quite low, you know, for a Christ follower to provide some food or some clothing for someone. I mean, the risk is not really there. I mean, it's it's well within their means to, to simply provide some food or some clothes for someone. Yet as James looks around at his fellow Christ followers, he sees this alarming lack of faith. He sees this alarming gap between what they're proclaiming to be true and what they're proclaiming to believe and actually how they're living. It's no good, says James. It's no good. Verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. I mean, later he makes the similar point, verse 20. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? 
26 is the body without the spirit is dead. So faith without deeds is dead. He's saying faith without deeds is useless and dead according to James. Let me speak to us for a moment and just reflect on some of what I've spoken about. You know, sometimes I think in life there are big acts that God calls us to, acts of faith that God may stir our hearts towards or speak to us about. I'm thinking about, you know, things like planting a church. And when I was thinking about this, I thought about old Mike Oesti and his family. I mean, here's a family that as we were looking to plant South Peninsula, was living in Constantia at the time, was part of the leadership team there, and they felt God stirring them to uproot their family and to relocate and to, and to actually put down a new home and a new house for the sake of this church and to see this church planted and established. This is an act of faith. There's risk here. You're risking for God. There's this element of saying yes, despite the complications and, the, and all of the, the difficulties that come along with it. Maybe other things that God can call us to is, is the sense of starting like an NGO or an NPO that's going to impact the nation. Or what about creating a business that, that's going to create loads of employment or going to create resources for kingdom uh, forward movement, the advance of the kingdom for kingdom initiatives. Maybe it's something like starting a life group. Maybe sometimes God stirs us to, to an act of faith, an act of risk, an act of saying yes despite things that might scare us. I mean, these are the big things. Maybe they're big for others, maybe not. But, but these are occasional things that God calls us to. Maybe for some of us they're even rare. But for, for every Christ follower, Every day there are acts of faith that God calls us to. Just in the ordinary, simple, daily living that we have. Things like helping those who are in need within our own household. Maybe our staff or or those that are within our sphere. Maybe acts of faith like trusting God with our finances. And when it comes to things like regular committed giving, as Mike spoke about, and how we, we trust God with our finances and honor Him with the first fruits of all that He provides of us, this is an act of faith that God calls us to. It could be helping those in need within the church. It could be this call to faithfulness in your workplace. Whatever that looks like, God could be calling you to make a, a step of faith in your workspace. It could be in relationships. Whether it's family relationships, it could involve you know, forgiveness or some kind of bitterness or something that's growing in there. It, it could be keeping a relationship pure physically. It could be this calling to an act of faith. It could be speaking for the powerless in our communities, in our municipalities, speaking up for the powerless, committing to serve, maybe sharing the gospel with someone. You've got a friend or someone that you would love to share the gospel with. It's an, it's an act of faith. It's an act of trust. Yeah, they, it's risking. There could be a cost. It could be awkward. But, but that's faith. And the list can go on and on. Now, on the one hand, it's pretty straightforward what James is saying. He's saying your faith is shown by what you actually do, not just by what you proclaim. But on the other hand, these statements by James that faith without works is useless or dead, makes these verses actually some of the most contested verses in the Bible, the most difficult to understand verses in the Bible, because all of a sudden now we're thinking, what is the relationship between faith and works? Now, how do those things work together? So let me go a little deeper and answer this question, what is the relationship between faith and works? 
See, because Paul writes in Ephesians 2, he says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So here you've got Paul writing that we are saved by grace through faith alone, not by works. But James has just written that faith without works is dead. So which is it? Is it faith alone without works? Or is it actually faith and works? We need to figure it out. And actually what the Bible's doing here as Christ follows, the Bible's calling us to live with attention in our lives. We have to hold these two things in tension. We have to hold faith and works in tension with each other without losing the significance of either of them. So let me help clear this up for us. I want to start by talking about grace. Now, Paul wrote, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. So as Christ followers, we have to be perfectly clear in our minds that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. We saved as we place our confidence and our trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. On the cross, Jesus made reconciliation with God possible through winning for us forgiveness of our sins and therefore reconciling us to our creator. Much like Isaac and that ram caught in the thickets, Jesus, in an act of undeserved love and mercy, substituted himself in our place and sacrificed himself on the cross. He died so that we can live. Now, the moment we place our confidence, our faith in this historic act of love, in this good news of what Jesus did, did we find ourselves standing under the waterfall of God's grace, mercy, and love. Through simple faith, His, His grace lavishly washes over us. We, we realize that we're forgiven, we're restored, we're made new, we're accepted, we're adopted into God's family through simple faith alone. We need to remember this. I've always found this acronym for grace helpful. I don't know if you've seen it before, but it's God's riches at Christ's expense. We experience the fullness of God's goodness toward us through a simple act of faith of trust, of confidence in what Jesus did on the cross. And it's that act of faith alone that saves us, that puts us under the waterfall of God's grace. We have to bank that. We have to be secure in that. We have to know that our salvation is by faith alone. You can see the tension here between this and what James is teaching, like faith without works is dead. But James is not arguing that we need to add anything to our faith. He's not saying you have to add works to your faith, that it's, it's your, that's your faith plus the works that you do that are going to win for you salvation. What he is saying is that a real and living faith is at work in our lives, transforming us from the inside out. And that a true and living faith, along with God's grace that's at work in our lives, sees us transformed in the way that we live out our lives every day. Here's an excerpt from a commentary uh, by Douglas Moo. He says this, What he is concerned to do is to define the true nature of faith. As he does throughout the letter of James, uh, 
as he does throughout his letter, James attacks superficial and inconsistent Christians who claim that they have faith but fail to act on the basis of their faith. Such a faith, James says, is dead and useless. And John Calvin, the great theologian, wrote, It is faith alone that justifies. It's faith alone that puts us in right standing with God, but faith that justifies can never be alone. James has been writing about believers, Christ followers, who claim to have faith, yet there's no traction in their lives. There's no congruence with the way that they're living and their faith that they claim to have in God. So again, let's go back to Paul. He writes uh, to Galatians. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. So we don't work for salvation. These works occur from the point of our salvation as we're transformed by the the power of grace and the power of trusting in God at work in our lives. Our, Our hearts are impacted. Our minds are impacted. And when that happens, our will is impacted and we act differently. We, those who act in accordance with what God's speaking to us about, with the truth of who he is, of what he desires for the world, of what he's on mission doing in the world. A true and living faith is incongruent with unchanged living. I hope that's been helpful to understand the the tension between faith and works. Finally, let me just speak lastly to these two ingredients of real living faith that we pick up in this text. Firstly, verse 18, it says, But someone will say, You have faith, while I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. The first ingredient is that, is that true and living faith and acts of faith are synergistic, not opposed to each other. They work together. They, they feed off each other. They're not opposed to each other. See, James has been hearing people talk. As he's been teaching and as he's been writing, he's hearing the murmurings coming back. There's a little bit of pushback coming from, from Christ followers around him. Some people are saying, hey, do you know what, James? I have faith. You know, I know all about God. My thing is to, is to know God, to study, you know, about God, to intellectually engage with Him. I'm the thinker. You know, others, they're not the thinkers, they're the doers. You know, and that's fine. That's what they do. This is what I do. You know, it's all good. Nonsense, says James. Nonsense. He says, true and living faith goes far beyond intellectual assent or understanding. We can never stop at, at simply understanding God or understanding what God's done. There has to be more than that. It's not only believing or knowing. You, know, you need to know more than about God, the doctrines of God. You, you need to go beyond knowing the story of salvation, knowing what Jesus did on the cross, understanding the story of the gospel. You have to move beyond understanding, and there needs to be this, this confidence, this entrusting your life to this truth that really is real and living faith. This true and living faith, it's only evidenced, it's only seen as we metabolize it into how we live. So the Expository Bible's commentary says this, faith is an attitude of the inner man and it can only be seen as it influences the actions of the one who possesses it. It's like James is saying, hey, those with true and living faith, they are the ones who put them, their money where their mouth is. They're acting 
They're banking on what they believe to be true about God. And so we see this true and living faith. It feels faithfulness. It feels faithful life. It's synergistic. These things are not opposed to each other. Well, that's the first ingredient. Here's the second one. We see that true faith impacts Christ's follower, your mind, your emotions, and your will. Verse 19, it says, you believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So James, again, he acknowledges that yeah, there's an aspect of our faith that has to do with our minds. I mean, believing right is the first step in faith. But if it stops there, our faith is no different from the faith of demons. James knows how to hit straight. They also understand the reality of who God is. They also understand ultimate reality. In fact, James goes on to explain that even for demons, it goes beyond understanding that actually there's an emotional response that demons have to this truth. They understand that there's real life consequences to the truth about who God is and they experience it in their emotions through fear. They shudder in fear. Matthew 8 tells the story of Jesus approaching a demonized man and the demons within him shouted him, son of God, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? I mean, they know exactly what's going on far more than humanity does. They understand the real life implications of who God is. They feel the emotional impact, but that's where their faith stops. They know, they feel, but they do not bow their knee and surrender to the truth of who God is. But true and living faith does. Our faith in God is about understanding who God is, but it can never stop there. Our faith causes emotive responses and impacts our lives, maybe through conviction, maybe through a sense of excitement about what we know about God or a sense of excitement about what God could do. But it can't stop at just that emotive level of excitement or conviction. Our faith must go on to impact our mind, our emotions, and then our will as we surrender to what we know to, about, to be true about God. This is true and living faith. I mean, the kind of faith we see in the patriarch and the prostitutes. I mean, you just love that. From kings to some of the lowest in the society, there can be true faith expressed that God just loves. I think this is a good place for me to, to begin to wrap up. Let me just summarize what I'm saying. I'm saying that the big idea is true faith True faith is shown to be genuine and alive through acts of faith that it produces in our lives. And we looked at the two examples. We looked at the tension between faith and works. We looked at these two ingredients of, of living faith. So here's the challenge for us. The challenge we're left with is to answer the question for ourselves. We all need to answer this question for ourselves as Christ followers. Is your faith showing itself to be real, to be genuine, to be alive through the acts of faith it produces in your life? It's challenging. I mean, is your story anything like Abraham and Rahab? I'm not talking about the scale of it necessarily, 
You know, Mother Teresa said, be faithful in little things, for in them your strength lies. To the good God, nothing is little because he is so great and we are so small. So when I speak about is our our faith that we have in God finding expression in the way we live, I'm talking about a true and living faith that simply says yes to God. As you reflect on your own life, is is that where you're at? When you hear truth about God, when you explore the scriptures and you understand and you, you begin to feel that response, are you those who, who follow through and say, yes, God, I'm going to make those changes. I'm going to make those adjustments. I'm talking about a true living faith that's willing to take risks for God, big and small. Are you willing to take risks for God as you follow what he's saying about himself and his will for your life? A true and living faith is willing to say yes to God even after counting the cost of what this could mean for my life, of what this could mean for those around me, of what this could mean in my workspace, wherever I find myself. A true living faith takes what it knows about God, even if it's just a little bit, and allows that truth to transform the way they think and the way they live. So perhaps in honest reflection, you know, your faith is maybe more like the person who just says, hey, go well, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing to help them. Maybe it's good to carve out some time of reflection this week. Maybe each of us, I guess it's school holidays, which for some people means margin, for other people means a lot busyness. But maybe we can carve out some time where you simply just stop and, and ask God to speak about the areas in your life where maybe... He's calling you to acts of faith, but, but it's not there. Maybe it's something old, something that God has spoken to you about previously. Maybe it's something new. Simply ask God for the strength and the courage to say yes, that these truths would find its way from our head and our heart into our will, how we live. But all of us can simply pray, God, always help us. Always help me to take you at your word and be inclined to say yes to what you're calling me to through my faith in you. Can I pray for us? You guys can come up. Let's pray together. Father God, we we hear your word. We hear your word through, through James. That's that you're encouraging us, you're exhorting us to acts of faith, that we wouldn't stop short of simply knowing and understanding, but that we would act on what we know to be true. We pray that would be true of us, God, each and every one of us, that you would stir us, that you would awaken us, that you would put a boldness and a courage and a willingness in us to just simply say yes to you. We know that our lives are safe in your hands. You know that it can be challenging and difficult for us, but yet, God, you call us to faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Will you stand with us as we just...